This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The mind of Vladimir Putin is a dangerous place to dwell, whether you are Russian or American. For many Americans, the mention of Vladimir Putin brings one of three images to mind. First, there is the voice of George Bush, the younger, saying, I looked the man in the eye, and I was able to get a sense of his soul. The second is then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, offering Putin a cheap plastic reset button. The third is then-President Obama telling Putin's associate, Dmitry Medvedev, that this is my last election. After my election, I have more flexibility. In all of these cases, you have an American leader trying to convince themselves that they can trust and work with Vladimir Putin. They were wrong. If the war in Ukraine has convinced us of anything, it should be that Putin is not to be trusted. In his essay, Trying to Explain Alexander Dugan, Mr. John Horvat tries to examine this unusual man's political theories and its effect on Vladimir Putin. For a long time, I've tried to read the work of Alexander Dugan, the guru philosopher of Vladimir Putin. Many acclaim his criticism of the modern liberal world and applaud his proposed solutions. They say he is the key to understanding Russia today. However, my efforts were not successful. Instead of clarity, I found his material to be rambling, esoteric, and confusing. Despite many attempts, I could not make much sense of what he said. Thus, it was with some surprise and even relief that I discovered an article in the February 2023 print edition of First Things titled Alexander Dugan Explained. Finally, someone had offered to explain his thought, and I eagerly took up the task of reading the article. The author, Michael Millerman, is qualified to talk about Dugan. The Russians' insights so transfixed him that he co-translated Dugan's 2009 masterwork, The Fourth Political Way, into English. Thus, his long article succinctly outlines some critical aspects of Dugan's thought. However, his narrative only increased my misgivings about Dugan. After reading the article... I do not share the author's cautious yet positive opinions about his theories. His explanations did not make the esoteric concepts any clearer. Millerman does help readers understand the present drama unfolding in Ukraine. That is not to say that everything inside Duganism is convoluted and mysterious. Millerman's article outlines some things that are easily grasped. For example, Dugan's key thesis which he calls the fourth political theory, is not hard to understand. Dugan observes that the 20th century was dominated by three ideological political currents, liberalism, communism, and fascism. By the end of the century, communism and fascism were defeated, and liberalism triumphed alone as a single pole of thought. Dugan believes that this triumph makes it difficult to criticize the crisis inside modern liberalism. Thus, those who legitimately oppose liberalism are often occurred of being either communists or fascists, supposedly making resistance impossible. I take issue with this assumption. A vast amount of scholarship, much of it Catholic, 
has opposed liberalism inside the bosom of liberal society for 200 years. For example, Pope Gregory XVI's encyclical Mirari Vos of August 15, 1832, and the Syllabus of Errors by Pope Pius IX, 1864. Even today, the debate rages on as liberalism is crumbling and people are searching for solutions. This false assumption, however, prepares the way for Dugan's fourth political theory. He claims to break through the problem of criticizing liberalism by providing an intellectual space to explore new possibilities outside of the three old frameworks. He sees this as a never-before-seen discovery, a kind of political sliced bread worthy of provoking much, quote, dancing and rejoicing, unquote. This fourth political theory presents a different paradigm for those who want to challenge decadent and globalized liberalism. Inside this fourth political theory, the different peoples create civilizations, forming large civilizational spaces and blocks. Smaller nation-states enjoy the semblance of sovereignty under the umbrella of, quote, politically organized, militarily capable civilizational centers that represent the poles of a multipolar world, unquote. This multipolar model is very well represented in the Ukrainian conflict. Putin seeks to return Ukraine to the Russian civilizational space despite the population's wishes to the contrary. Another clear notion is that Dugan's thought and his fourth political way target liberalism for many of the same reasons that those who defend tradition oppose it. Indeed, liberalism tends to erode institutions, foster materialism, and favor atomistic individualism. This liberalism paved the way for decadent postmodernity, which is generating ever more monstrous forms of political and cultural expression. For this reason, the Dugan proposal attacks the woke world that questions identity, imposes gender ideology, and promotes critical race theory. Thus, Dugan's ideas are mistakenly identified as a classical conservative project since he targets these aberrations. However, he would be the first to admit that he does not share the same philosophy. This outlook gives rise to a fundamental problem with Duganism. His attack on liberalism includes everything Western and Catholic. He does not see modern liberalism as a parasite on Western Christian thought and Aristotelian metaphysics, but as a consequence. It must be replaced by many paradigms, including Islamic ones, that are entirely different and non-Western. Up to this point, Dugan's thought can at least be grasped. However, Millerman's entry into the philosophical roots of Duganism plunges everything into esoteric darkness. He says that the key to understanding Dugan can be found in the Russian's interpretation of Martin Heidegger. This affirmation explains much of the rambling and mystery in my first encounters with Dugan. Indeed, Martin Heidegger, 1889-1976, 
is a very awkward person to use as a foundation. His 1927 book, Being and Time, startled the German philosophical world with its complexity. The Encyclopedia Britannica makes a telltale commentary about the book, saying, Although almost unreadable, it was immediately felt to be of prime importance. Unquote. The German philosopher was a consummate rambler and leading exponent of existentialism and phenomenology that formed the basis of anti liberal postmodern thought. He drew heavily on Soren Kierkegaard and Friedrich Nietzsche. He was also a supporter of Adolf Hitler. He was imprisoned after the war because of his clear Nazi connections. However, his reputation does not seem to have suffered from the links. His supporters on the left and right find no difficulty in citing him. And so, if you want to understand Dugan, Heidegger is your man. However, he is not mine. I understand enough of Heidegger to know that it is not worthwhile to delve deeply into the shadow lake of his muddled thought. I prefer to leave him unreadable and avoid his existential fog. What he proposes is not a modification of how we see the world, but a revolution that overturns the metaphysical foundations of the Christian West. His is a purely philosophical proposal in which Christianity plays, at best, a secondary role. Quote, We know from texts published in Heidegger's lifetime, writes Notre Dame professor Cyril O'Regan, that he thinks that Christianity constitutively represses free inquiry, that Christian philosophy is in essence an oxymoron, that Christian thought is straitjacketed by a commitment to an explanation and specifically to the construction of a first cause. Unquote. Suffice it to say that Millerman tells how Dugan, channeling Heidegger, calls upon us, quote, to turn our thoughts from the mainstream metaphysical tradition which talks of being and beings toward the source of the thought-worthy as such. Unquote. Inside the esoteric ramblings of modern philosophies are the pagan overtones of errors long conquered by the Church. The eternal questioning of the essence of being can lead to pantheism and mysticism. Millerman exults in, quote, a kind of intellectual renaissance on the right that includes controversial figures like Friedrich Nietzsche and Carl Schmitt, who had been appropriated by the left after World War II and now find a more natural place on the political spectrum, unquote. Figures like Islamist thinker René Guignon and occultist Julius Evola are also receiving attention. Millerman puts Dugan's Heidegger-driven political theory into this intellectual context. This collection of individuals, most of them hostile to God, is not the stuff from which a Catholic revival will come. This is the time to return to Christendom's philosophical and metaphysical roots, not to look elsewhere. We must reject the esoteric chaos of postmodernity and adopt the crystalline logic accessible to all of church teaching.
This foundation gave rise to an organic Christian society bound by God's law and suited to human nature. It produced real intellectuals like the scholastics and St. Thomas Aquinas, which these intellectuals despise. In his encyclical, Immortali Dei, 1885, Pope Leo XIII described this resultant order as one in which, quote, the influence of Christian wisdom and its divine virtue permeated the laws, institutions, and customs of the peoples, all categories and all relations of civil society, unquote. To combat the errors of liberalism, the Church has the answer. Catholic thinker Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira affirms that the Christian civilization is a solution that can fill the postmodern void. We must seek a society that is, quote, austere and hierarchical, fundamentally sacral, anti-egalitarian, and anti-liberal, unquote. So then, how does Vladimir Putin take an unreadable and unfathomable political philosophy and translate it into the words that the Russian people can support? Mr. James Bascom answers that question in his essay, Putin's Ideology, in his own words. To better understand Putin's worldview, French philosopher Michel Etchianov went straight to the source. Ever since Vladimir Putin came to power in Russia 22 years ago, Western observers have tried to discern his ideology. Is he a Russian nationalist bent on reconstituting the Russian Empire, or a neo-communist angry over the collapse of the Soviet Union? Perhaps he's simply a patriot without any actual ideology, but who practices a Machiavelli-esque realpolitik to rebuild Russia's international standing. Putin presents himself as a great opponent of Western European liberalism. He tries to portray liberalism with its promotion of immoral lifestyles and the destruction of borders and Western civilization as one and the same thing. According to this narrative, the Russian nation is the great victim of Western aggression. Russia's role is to organize the rest of the world to overthrow Western power and hegemony. These questions are especially important for devout Catholics and other Christians who, appalled with Western cultural decadence and the evils of the sexual revolution, are tempted to see Putin as an ally. Upon closer scrutiny, Putin's ideology is rooted in 19th and 20th century Russian thinkers who have much in common with their contemporary Western counterparts. While sometimes using the language of Christianity, these thinkers were often rooted in Gnostic, pantheistic, and pseudo-mystical concepts of society and religion that are in radical opposition to Christianity, especially to the Catholic Church. To better understand Putin's worldview, French philosopher Michel Etienneoff went straight to the source, Putin's own words. In Inside the Mind of Vladimir Putin, 
Elchianov paints a fascinating philosophical trajectory of Putinism based on his many speeches, interviews, and statements. He also reports on the views of Putin's closest advisors. The book has the added advantage of being published in 2015, before the present conflict, and thus cannot be accused of tailoring its message to accommodate the times. Elchianov is well-positioned to study Putin's ideology. He is an expert in 19th-century Russian literature, a professor of philosophy, and a fluent Russian speaker. As it turns out, philosophy and literature are everywhere in Putin's speeches and among the cadres of his party, United Russia. Certain 19th-century Russian thinkers, in particular, are experiencing a renaissance of sorts in Putin's Russia. These writers, many of whom are untranslated, are key to understanding his motives and worldview. When he started his political career, Putin presented himself as a liberal and an admirer of the West. He is a native of St. Petersburg, the most western of Russian cities, and has always indicated an admiration for his city's pro-Western founder, Peter the Great. When Putin was mayor of St. Petersburg in the 90s, he even placed a portrait of Peter the Great in his office. As a law student at Leningrad State University, Putin studied many Western thinkers such as Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. But the Western philosopher he seems to admire most is Immanuel Kant, quoting him several times in his speeches. In a speech during a 2000 visit to Kaliningrad, the former Königsberg, Kant's birthplace, Putin praised Kant's contribution to Western liberal thought. Quote, of course, Kant is first and foremost a great figure of the German Enlightenment, but he is more than that. Thanks to his considerable contribution to global culture, he is among that category of people we can call citizens of the world. Unquote. Putin tried to portray Russia as a good neighbor to the nations of Western Europe. Quote, Russia is, of course, a Eurasian country, he stated in 2002. But Russia is without any doubt a European country, because it is a country of European culture, unquote. As such, Russia had no revanchist intentions in Europe, either toward Ukraine or any other country. Quote, we have never proclaimed any region of the world as a zone of national interest, unquote. If there was anything he didn't want, it was conflict with the United States. Quote, Who here could be interested in a confrontation between Russia and the rest of the world, and with one of the most powerful states in the world, the United States? Whom could that interest? People like that don't exist. Unquote. Whether or not Putin actually believed in these liberal statements is another matter. Some analysts believe that he was always insincere. But the fact remains that he spent the 90s and his first decade as president of the Russian Federation trying to appear as a good liberal. 
many of Putin's declarations about the Soviet Union are likewise contradictory. For example, Putin has said that the communist ideology with its classless society is, quote, nothing more than a beautiful story but a dangerous one, leading to an impasse, unquote. He blamed the Germans who, quote, forced Marx and Engels on us. Anyone who doesn't miss the Soviet Union has no heart, and anyone who wants it back has no brain, unquote. Yet Putin often speaks fondly of the Soviet Union and the KGB. In 2005, Putin lamented the breakup of the Soviet Union in an address to the nation, calling it the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. On another occasion, in 2016, he claimed that he still kept his communist membership card and liked communist and socialist ideals very much. He calls the moral code of the builder of communism, a set of 12 principles that every party member was obliged to follow, wonderful ideas that, in his view, resemble the Bible in many ways. He is also rehabilitating the great figures of the communist period, including Joseph Stalin. In 2014, Putin voiced support for a proposal to rename Volgograd to Stalingrad. Felix Derzhinsky, the famous follower of the Cheka secret police, has also found favor in Putin's Russia. In 2014, Putin signed a decree naming the Industrial Operational Security Division of the Russian Department of the Interior the Derzhinsky Division. Putin has also built a statue of Derzhinsky in Kirov and dedicated a museum to him. As he admits, Putin much prefers outdoor activities and judo to libraries or study. Putin is neither a philosopher nor an intellectual and sometimes even disparages them. He has repeated that he does not want to implement Soviet-style state ideology, but a state ideology nonetheless. Quote, I do not think that we need a dominant ideology and philosophy, but the state can, of course, be led by a philosopher so long as he shares this vision of things, unquote. Putin's advisors insist that to speak of a Putin philosophy is somewhat simplistic, but Putin does seek to reestablish what he considers to be the positive aspects of the Soviet Union, backed up by a replacement ideology. Elchianov shows how this Putinist ideology began to take form around 2002, especially after the Breslin terrorist attack in 2004 and Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008. By his third presidential term in 2012, Putin had become more conservative in his speeches, praising traditional Russian culture, Christian values, and holy Russia. He also began to blame the West for its general acceptance of homosexuality and portray himself as a champion of the Christian family. This change reached a climax in the fall of 2013 
which Elchianov calls Putin's conservative turn. Just as the Euro-maiden protests began, Putin gave speeches in which he outlined his ideological views in comparison with what he disparagingly calls Euro-Atlantic or Anglo-Saxon countries. On December 12, 2013, Putin declared that these countries are, quote, revising their moral values and ethical norms, eroding ethnic traditions and differences between peoples and cultures, unquote. He called for a defense of traditional values and acknowledged that, quote, yes, of course, it's a conservative position, unquote. In January 2014, top officials of the United Russia Party received an odd New Year's gift from the President's office. Books of Philosophy by Ivan Ilyin, Nikolai Berdeyev, and Vladimir Solovyov, all 19th and early 20th century Russian thinkers. In March of that year, members and functionaries of the party were obliged to attend classes on philosophy. In August 2014, Putin held a Tavrida International Youth Forum in the newly conquered Crimea, where Russian intellectuals gathered to explain the principles of what Elchianov calls Russia's conservative turn inaugurated by Putin. In the words of one professor from Moscow State University at the event, Russia's destiny is no less than to build herself up as a separate civilization, to think of herself as the conservative savior of Europe. Where did this conservative turn come from? Are there certain thinkers who could be considered as Putin's inspiration? And what exactly does Putin mean by conservatism, tradition, and moral values? Is he really an opponent of evils from the West? And is his proposed solution something Western Christians should support? Or does he use the language of Christian conservatism to promote what is at its roots an anti-Christian revolutionary ideology? If one could synthesize the common elements of these philosophers cited by Putin, it is that they favor a type of pseudo-mystical populism of the Russian people. Russia has a universal messianic mission to unify the world against the West and the Catholic Church, which they identify with socialism, egalitarianism, universalism, and modernity. This mission is based on the Russian way, a type of mystical populism that promotes sovereign democracy and a vertical of power as alternatives to Western-style governments. Elchianov explains that Russian intellectuals were divided into two camps in the 19th and early 20th centuries. On one side were the Westernizers, those Russians who believed that their country should follow the example of Peter the Great and embrace Western modernity. These Russians equated Western civilization with the revolutionary, egalitarian, atheistic, and utopian philosophies of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. 
They were avid supporters of French and German socialist and communist thinkers, such as Saint-Simon, Louis Blanc, Hegel, and Feuerbach. For them, Russia should join the path of progress and embrace these Western ideologies. Opposed to the Westernizers were the Slavophiles. They saw the West as Russia's greatest enemy. Like the Westernizers, they equated Western culture with the Enlightenment. But if Napoleon's invasion of Russia had taught them anything, it was that the West, with its egalitarianism and liberalism, would inevitably try to conquer and destroy the Russian nation. The Slavophiles sought to promote the Russian, quote, national genius founded on a religious view of the world, on the virtues of the Russian people, or the particularities of their social organization, unquote. Although it would be incorrect to call Putin a Slavophile, he nonetheless draws on some of their ideas for his worldview. Some of the most important Slavophiles were Alexei Komiakov, 1804-1860, and Ivan Kurevsky, 1806-1856. Quote, Attacking individualism, the dullness of abstraction, the mechanical routine of existence in the West, writes Elchianov, Kirevsky also celebrated the organic togetherness of Russian popular life nourished by a vibrant Christian faith. Unquote. Ironically, the Slavophiles were just as influenced by Western philosophy as the Westerners were. Most were from wealthy families and were even more likely to have studied in Western Europe than the Westernizers themselves. Slavophilia was a Russian version of Western nationalism that was sweeping Europe in the 19th century. Like nationalism, it was rooted in thoroughly modern and anti-Christian revolutionary thought, even if it was sometimes dressed up with Christian language. The Slavophile most cited by Putin is Nikolai Danielevsky, 1822-1885, and his book, Russia and Europe. Danilevsky advocated for pan-Slavism, in which all Slavic peoples would be united in a single state under Russian domination, which would create a new equilibrium in the world against the West. He believed in Russia's collectivist mentality and belief in a strong authoritarian leader, the Tsar, who was the only bulwark against Western liberalism and decadence. According to Elchianov, quote, Drawing on Hegel's affirmation in his Elements of the Philosophy of Right of the Ethical Moment of War, Danilevsky considered that popular mobilization in war represented a special process of fermentation in the evolution of a cultural and political renaissance. He even formulated a law of historical economy, whereby a reservoir of vital forces had been accumulating in Russia for centuries, part of the population protected by forests, steppes, and mountains had continued to develop silently, saving up future strength. This ethnographic tribal energy would one day find the means to expand itself." Unquote. For Danilevsky, 
The Russians were the people chosen by God to reveal religious truth to the world. And for this to happen, Russia had to fight and defeat the West. The 21st century reincarnation of this pan-Slavist ideology is so-called Eurasianism. On May 29, 2014, Putin signed a treaty with Kazakhstan and Belarus that established the Eurasian Economic Union. Intended to model and rival the European Union, it allows free movement of people, capital, goods, and services with the possibility of a single currency in the future. Eurasianism is a cherished dream of Putin and the Russian philosopher Alexander Duggan, in which the countries of Eurasia would unite to form a great bloc to confront and defeat the West. Putin's most admired philosopher of Eurasianism is Lev Gumilev, 1912-1992 whom Putin has praised on numerous occasions. Gumilev was violently anti-Western and promoted Eurasia as Russia's only path forward. He also advocated a strange, naturalistic, and pantheistic theory of biological determinism. He thought that ethnic groups have life cycles like human beings and form a type of cosmic energy, which he called passionarity that is exchanged between a certain ethnic group and the land, animals, and minerals of the territory they inhabit. Russians have a high level of passionarity and form a superior ethnic group, while the Western Europeans and Americans are in a state of decline. Among the Russian thinkers and philosophers most often cited by Putin is Konstantin Leontiev, 1831-1891. Nicknamed the Russian Nietzsche, he believed in a pantheistic theory that history is an endless cycle of civilizations that are born, rise, fall, and die. According to him, the West has been in a state of decadence since the Renaissance, while Russian civilization was on the rise. Leontiev harbored an intense hatred for Enlightenment liberalism and egalitarianism, which he equated with Western civilization. The strict, severe autocracy of the Russian Orthodox Church and the Tsar were the only antidote to Russia defending its identity against a feudal Europe seeking to destroy it. Russia, he believed, should make a cultural alliance with China, India, and Tibet to ward off the threat from the West. Ironically, Elchianov points out that Leontiev's anti-Western ideas were quite similar to Western revolutionary thinkers, especially Nietzsche, with whom he is usually compared, and Oswald Spengler, author of The Decline of the West. Spengler was part of the so-called German Conservative Revolution, 1918 to 1933, a movement that anticipated some of the ideas of fascism and national socialism. Like those of Nietzsche, their ideas rejected both modernity and traditional Christianity, which they saw as a force that weakened Western peoples. Christianity, at best, 
must be instrumentalized to favor the nation's interests. Not surprisingly, this is precisely how the Russian Orthodox Church is used by the Putin government today. But perhaps the most important of Putin's philosophers is Ivan Ilyin, 1873-1950, a Russian specialist in Hegel. Relatively unknown during his lifetime, Ilyin is now Putin's philosopher of choice, who quotes him in his speeches more than any other Russian thinker. Ilyin was aboard the philosopher's ship of Russian intellectuals exiled to the West by Lenin in 1922. An opponent of Bolshevism, Ilyin later praised what he saw as positive traits of German National Socialism. He believed Russia is not an, quote, artificially arranged mechanism, but an organism shaped by history and justified by culture, unquote. He wrote that the West will always seek to dismember Russia because, quote, the peoples of the West neither understand nor tolerate Russian originality, unquote. The solution he proposes is remarkably close to the Putin program. In his book, Our Mission, he writes that Russia needs a guide, a strongman ruler who will implement what he calls a new Russian idea. The idea is not the idea of the people, of democracy, of socialism, of imperialism, of totalitarianism. A new idea is needed, religious in its sources and national in its spiritual meaning, unquote. Putin's message resonates with many Westerners, especially his rejection of homosexuality and the errors of liberal democracy. Many take him at his word when he praises Christian values, the natural family, or tradition. He and his supporters claim that the world, especially the West, must choose either liberal democracy or the Putin model, homosexuality or the natural family, secular atheism or Christian values. Michel Etchianov seems to agree with this false dilemma. Both Putinists and Western liberals may hate each other, but they come together on one fundamental point. Western civilization and Western liberalism are the same thing. Christians and Catholics should reject this false dilemma. Liberalism is one of the causes of the crisis in the Western world today, but Putinism is not its solution. Inside the mind of Vladimir Putin shows, however, that Putin's words cannot be taken at face value. His favorite philosophers are pantheistic, naturalistic, and even Gnostic, all ideas that are in opposition to fundamental Christian theology. Liberalism and Putin both wage war on what remains of Western Christian civilization. That civilization was built over 2,000 years, in large part to the influence of the Catholic Church. Western Christians should reject the liberalism-Putinism false dilemma and fight to save the West.
This concludes, The mind of Vladimir Putin is a dangerous place to dwell, whether you are Russian or American. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.